0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold, and Conscious Construction starts right now. To be digging into a little bit of sociology in this lecture. Raise your hand if you've ever taken a sociology class. Okay. Did you like it? Did you learn a lot? One of the classes that completely changed my life forever was a class called Deviance in US Society. I had a really famous professor named Patty Adler. You can look her up. She's been canceled. It's probably why I liked her so much. Sometimes I forget how much that actually framed how I observe humanity. And going through and creating these lecture slides for you really reminded me how much a part of sociology break really is. Because honestly, what we do, its even as we all know that have been through it, it's even less about... The individual, right? As you're going through it, of course, you have that moment where you're like, oh, this is, you know, I am I am the asshole, right? It's a me problem. But we're always looking at it in a broader context of input-output, right? Input output with mom, input output with dad. It's always in the context of how we operate as an individual within a system every time. There's no way out of that, right? It's how we operate as an individual within the system of school, how we operate as an individual within the system of an intimate relationship. And so much of who we've been programmed to become as a society is responsible for those inputs, right? As we move through those inputs, when we look at that part of the lecture, what's in your basket, that usually is a huge mind blow for people. So to give some context, the what's in your basket prompt helps us understand if we were essentially a child just carrying around a basket like this, as we're aging, different people, different organizations, literally just put thoughts and beliefs and assumptions into your basket as you age, right? Maybe that's your religion. Maybe that's your grandparents. Maybe that's the conflict between the way your mom and your dad talk about religion, right? It could be a million different things and much of it is very passive. But we often don't pay attention to how much society actually puts a lot of stuff in our bag because it's happening to everybody. So as things happen to everybody and they become more and more and more normal, like things that were normal in the 50s are not normal right now. Things that were normal in the 90s are not normal right now. Um, did anybody ever see, what's that movie with, um, I feel like it was like Seth Green where he's like a white gangster from Beverly Hills, anyone, anyone, what was it called?
1: Uh,
0: No, mm -mm. 90s, 90s movie, what is it? Malibu's Most Wanted, okay guys, that movie would never get made right now, that would be like the most anti-PC movie of all time, in the 90s, perfectly acceptable, no problem. Right? Team America. Anyone ever seen Team America? Funny as hell. Would that be acceptable today? No, that would not be acceptable today. So when we're in it, we're not really seeing what is happening on a bigger picture scale because it's just, it's happening in real time. So often we have to learn about these things, even from the sociological perspective, by reflecting backwards. So My hope in a lot of this is as I can teach you how to look at what is transpiring in our world, like a sociologist, we can see that perhaps as we're in it, something feels like it's okay, but we have plenty of examples from the past where we reflect back and we're like, oops, that felt like it was going in a good direction, but it's actually going in a really horrible direction for humanity. So. The goal for the entire weekend is to kind of now add this new lens on top of your break glasses where now you can look at things like a sociologist and understand the bigger implications of allowing things to just keep kind of mindlessly going the way they are now. So prepare to expand your brain. Throughout the weekend, we are going to be coming at information from so many different angles and it might be in the moments like how on earth is this all gonna connect? Trust me, if you've ever been to Break Live before, even things that you're like, those could never be related. At the end, you're like, whoa, totally related. So just stick with it. We're all going to land in a place where everything comes together, even if you cannot understand how anything would come together, I promise. So now comes the time. I want everyone to raise your hand if you've ever had to deal with peer pressure. Should be everybody.
2: <laughs>
0: okay, now... The bigger question, right? I am pressuring you to raise your hand. (laughs) So the bigger question here is how many of you, if you look back at the times that peer pressure made you do things, right, act a certain way or talk a certain way or, you know, make a certain behavioral choice, did that ever lead you to do something that now in hindsight you kind of regret or maybe was a bad look? Yeah? Okay, great. I would like three people to volunteer their absolute worst stories. I'm going to start because mine's pretty bad. This one time at fan camp. No. <laughs> um, so we do really stupid things that in the moment feel not stupid, right? Because you're, you're surrounded by all of your friends chatting in your ear and they're like, it's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Just You don't want to get in trouble with your parents. Just do it. Just do it. Guys, I picked my little sister up from school dripping on mushrooms. Not good, that's not good, you don't do that. I definitely put her life in risk. Agreed? Agreed. I was 16, okay? We'll give 16 we'll year old Busy a pass. But when I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh no, my mom just asked me to pick up my sister. And I'm like, oh no, I can't tell her I'm dripping. I can't be like, mom, I can't do it. I'm dripping on mushrooms. But all my friends are like, it's fine. You're acting totally normal. You can totally go pick her up. And I'm like, am I? Am I? I'm I'm acting normal. And they're like, yeah, you got this. Like, you're the most collected out of all of us. Just, you got this. And I was like, okay, I got this. I got this. And then I walk out the car. I'm like, I don't. I'm tripping. I don't have this. But you know what? I made it. And I made it home. And no one ever knew except you guys now. But if I look back, was that a good decision? No. And honestly, if my friends had not said a word, I probably would have been like, mom, I just can't do it. I can't tell you why, but I can't do it. There's no way I would have done it. But as soon as my friends, right, because you're also highly susceptible, for those of you that haven't done mushrooms, highly suggestible. Someone also one time was like, because your lips are turning blue. And I was like, wait, what? And I stared in the mirror for like two hours. So. Happy to say I don't do that anymore, obviously. But the point is, when you're highly suggestible and a bunch of friends are like, no, you're great, you got this, you got this. You're like, yeah, yeah, false sense of confidence. Everyone else says I'm good, so I'm good. And then you go and do it. Thankfully, it didn't result in a huge, massive trauma like it could have. But it's my job now as an adult to reflect back and say, you know what? There are plenty of times, actually, like that, where I did something that might have put somebody's life at risk because my friends are like, you got this, you got this. So now it's somebody else's turn. Dave, you got one?
3: Oh, I got so many. I'm, I'm sure you do. Um, to piggyback on your mushroom story, I was, I, I um, followed the band Fish, and I thought it would be fun to go on a tour for a year. And um, up until last, like, 2019, I was still following fish. That's how I met my current, soon-to-be ex-wife. And the fake light and love of that scene is amazing. And, like, everyone in that scene normalizes drug usage, hallucinogens. I mean, you both... It's just insane. And, um... When I got into break, I was looking at all that behavior and going, wow, I've made a complete clusterfuck of my life because of this. But my <laughs> friends normalized it and it was like, oh, we're going on tour, bro. And like, I had kids, you know, I got, I'm trying to build run a business and I'm acting like, you know, a 20-year-old kid who's got no no cares in the world. Meanwhile, everything's crumbling. But it's okay because I'm drunk and high and watching concerts. <laughs> so... Yeah, that peer pressure was real, and um, when I and did
0: it alter it like altered the way you were thinking about reality it, it in altered those moments. Everything. I mean, my
3: perception was completely. I mean, we had a group called Fishing Drunk, and it was cool to like drink and show yourself all hammered and doing dumb shit online nowadays. Not good because there's a no. Of it. So like, there's no no common sense. You know what I mean? So yeah, it it, it definitely like just made everything not good.
0: So. Welcome to sobriety, glad you're here. Oh, thank Best God. bump. <laughs> Gloria.
2: I was, uh, let's see, quite fifth grade, and I had a girl, uh, a friend, girlfriend, uh, and I uh, think uh, you spend the night, and the next, Saturday night, and then, fifth grade, fourth grade, and the next day we were going to church as a family, and she convinced, I guess, my parents to say, oh. Me and Gloria will go to church here locally, like down the street, we'll walk there. And my parents literally said, okay. And then she wrote a note. <laughs> and this is like the little spontaneous stuff. And then she's like, oh, well, let's like do a prank. And so we, she wrote, she were dressed like dressed up for church. And she's like, in this dress, we're in to dress. And she wrote a note and, and we left it, she left it on the front, like, Porch of my <laughs> best friend, basically, the grave, and the note said, "Thanks, dear," her, her name, "Thanks for last night or yesterday," and from a boy. Oh God! His name, and it was like a prank, right? And we li- she literally, li- you know, did the doorbell dish thing, ran, and I had behind the car and just kind of waited and watched, and I was like a, I was a what's it called, accomplice, mm-hmm. just being there, and. I heard that my friend got hit by her dad. Oh. And we're like, mm. we're in fourth grade, of course you're not having sex, you know mean. <laughs> 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 and it's sub- the suburbs. And uh, then her mom and her came to my door um, uh, like a few days later to let me know, and I was just like, please don't tell my parents. And they didn't, and she and I stayed friends, but literally it's like, digs a, you know, it was like literally this. Yeah.
0: 'Cause it was just so opposite of anything that you would it's do on your own. Like, I'm
2: okay, fine, like whatever. But um not good. Not cool. Not mm-hmm.
0: good. Anyone else? Yeah. So I was just in
2: just as we were
1: transitioning out of the middle school, at the high school, I was in band, kind of doing things that were a little bit more creative, trying to build that up. And I really enjoyed it, but I had friends that were kind of the cool girls and as we ended the year. You know, they kind of said, hey, when you're going into high school, like, if you want people to like you, you really can't. Or you really shouldn't, you know, be in band anymore, being, mm-hmm. you know, in these kind of classes. And so I started changing what I would choose based on everyone else, which mm-hmm. I feel really pulled me away from those creative aspects or just being able to on my like ground and say, hey, I don't want to do this. So mm-hmm. that was uh, definitely a big choice point. And,
0: and now looking back on it, you can see where that created a, what I usually call like a choice point split, where it's like, well, I chose to kind of like turn away from that even though it was something that filled me up and then later on, it usually creates kind of a little bit of a hole right. in who you became. And
1: even to right now I've got two instruments in my closet which I'm like, I really want to learn these, but
0: there's still that little bit of resistance in there. Like, mm. oh, but it's, it's gonna really make her not it. cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna get those instruments out of the closet. Anyone else, one way. Oh, Gina, sorry, I'm blind, even with my glasses on, blind. This
4: is a rough one, but um, my family's into organized crime, and so I would get in trouble when I did scam people for money. And so I got they threw me a party, when I scammed somebody for $5,000. I was 19, I was 18. Wow. And I left at 19, because
0: that's That's worst. some peer wow. pressure shit
4: right there. <laughs> Not in my best interest. Totally. I left my whole family after that, because I couldn't, I just couldn't. But I got beat up when I didn't, and then I had a party. When you did. And when let me tell you, when they did that, I was like, I'm in the twilight zone. <laughs> what are these people doing? They brought me fuzzy navels and a party at, at 17, 18 years old. But I got like literally punched in my face when I said no the first time. So I, when I gave in, I got a party. I was like, I need to even show the party, I was in my room.
0: So this brings up kind of where we're going with this is that typically in each of these instances, there might be that little moment, maybe it's only two seconds, maybe it's 10 minutes, who knows, where you're like, ugh, something about it doesn't feel right, but then you go against your own internal moral compass, right? And I think, you know, obviously the term morality in and of itself, I feel like is very stigmatized right now. And of course, that can be very subjective. So when I'm talking about morality, that's something that's specific to each individual person. So it's kind of more that Not your gut, because if you've watched any of my other lectures or my podcast, that's where your poop and your IBS problems come from. That's like instinctive pattern. That's not your actual intuition, like heart-centered connection. But that like the heart-centered, if you were like a heart-centered care bear, we're able to actually just decide right and wrong with your heart. What's best for yourself or best for your family or humankind in a future thinking sort of way. That's what I'm talking about when I say morality. It's not like what's in a book or what's on a piece of paper because that's going to be different for everybody. But typically, as we get patterned a certain way, we start to disconnect or shut down from kind of that internal truth. Some of the goal for today and tomorrow is to get you to reconnect to some of that. And really, ultimately, you know, for some of you that came through religious trauma or are currently religious, ultimately, I would love to see you guys choose this stuff critically rather than because you're afraid to go to hell or because your parents want you to believe this right those things are not things that can be anchored in forever that one push comes to shove you can navigate your way through them because just because has no it has no background it has no ability for your brain to reconcile it so it's really easy for somebody to push you into peer pressure when all that's there backing it is a just because Because just because has no foundation so the goal for everything is to get you to choose what's right for your internal moral compass, not because of something else, but because you know it's right for you. Um, even if it's at odds with all the things your brain patterns are telling you to do, which it often is. So when we talk about peer pressure, what we're really talking about is the ability for you know, maybe two people, 10 people, maybe a whole society to alter or steer and guide your behavior based on perceived fear and shame right we have an inherent desire to be connected to and part of a group right it's just it's part of who we are as a people so when that gets put into jeopardy or even we think it's going to get put into jeopardy we're much more likely to toe the line we're much more likely to do what the group wants us to do to do what our partner wants us to do to let's be honest, even do what our kids want to do. So how often as a parent have you crumbled when you know you should be like holding the line with discipline? You're like, okay, you can have 10 more pieces of candy and then deep down you're like, why did I just do that? Right? We can even be peer pressured by our kids. Clearly that's not necessarily peer pressure, but it's certainly pressure and manipulation. Works basically the same way. So what we're really looking at here, when we're looking at how this is going to get augmented from the micro to the macro level as it keeps growing is that fear and shame and kind of that perception that you could be pushed out of the group are ultimately what alter your behavior. That deep desire to be connected, if we look back at what our life was like, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, we were all, to a degree, either a nomadic or tribal people, right? We had to rely on the people around us for our survival and being pushed out of the group in many cases could literally mean death for you, right? In many cases, in many geographic regions, you physically could not survive on your own. So this actually hits us at a very deep primal level, our desire to be part of the group because it feels safe to our brain. But I think many of us can attest to some of the things that we've done in an attempt to feel safe have actually created much more chaos in our life, agree? Okay. So just remember that that part of your brain that just immediately wants to crumble and do what they're told, it comes from this deep primal need to be safe. So just like with break, where the brain wants to perceive safety as just known cause and effect, even if that known cause and effect is not in your best interest, the same is true for how we want to be included in the group. Even if what the group has designed or planned for us is not actually in our individual best interest, or humanity's best interest, there's still that part of our brain that naturally wants to comply for our own safety. So we're gonna have to be able to essentially look at the brake goggles the same way. How are we being tricked into recreating this scenario and how can we feel safe, right, knowing that that's obviously subjective, potentially deviating from the norm if that's what's going to give us a better life because many of us are going to be faced with those situations right now. So if we look back at children, raise your hand if you have kids. Okay, it's a lot of us. So when we try to help kids deal with peer pressure, we usually have like, you know, we're able to pull the toolkit out pretty quick. We're like, oh, I got this. I know how to tell you to do this. But when we try to do it for ourselves, all hell breaks loose. So let's stick to what we usually tell kids to do. Stay true to who you are and be sure to articulate your boundaries. To articulate your boundaries, you have to what? Know what your boundaries are, right? That's really hard for a lot of people, especially that are people pleasers or are constantly trying to recalculate what they want because they're afraid it's going to set somebody off. But that's to do number one. You have to actually know what your boundaries are. Um, Then we have to equip them with the strategies to advocate for themselves, right? Like the actual language to speak up. Uh, My dad just told me to kick them in the balls. I don't recommend that. Um, It worked for me in preschool when I had a bully situation, but we want to give them words, not a kick in the balls, right? It's just, we need words. Uh, And we need to help them align with positive alternatives. So it's really hard to tell a kid, like, hey, this group wants to do all these things, and if you don't think that's right for you, you're probably going to either A, have to spend a little bit more time alone, or B, try to find an alternative group, right? So using your example, remind me your name one more time. Sierra. Sierra. Using your example, it would have in that moment it would have been like, hey, you might have to let go of this like thought of being one of the cool girls if you want to keep following your passion, right? You've got to be able to articulate that to the child. And they do have to be okay with being equipped to potentially go it alone for a little while. And the same is true for all of us, right? It's usually really hard for us to be like, oh, but that first five steps, I might be really alone. Yeah, you might, I've been there. It sucks. But knowing that every single time each one of us is willing to take those five steps alone, eventually we're all going to bump into the other people that all took the five steps alone. And then we're like, oh, hey, we all took the five steps. Good job. We're not alone anymore. So part of it is also a walk of faith because you have to know that the more we keep waking people up to take those five steps and be okay with just being alone just for those few minutes or a few steps, eventually that's how we all start to reconnect with each other based on the right things rather than the wrong things. And fear is what keeps you from taking the five steps. So what's, I'm sure, very top of mind for all of us is that kind of the, the simple crappy things that used to be part of our peer pressure, like you know I was born in 85, I'm sure some of you were born in the 60s, 70s, Pops, what year were you born? Fifty-three. Fifty-three. Pops, fifty-three. So, right, his peer pressure, his peer pressure was different than your peer pressure, etc. Let me tell you how wild today's peer pressure is. Has anyone actually bumped into that with their kids yet, where they're like, I, I don't even know how to handle those problems without me getting canceled as a parent? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> right? It's it's pretty intense it's intense to even talk about it because people are so inflamed and divisive about how to even deal with it. So, a lot of the things that once, like, the issues seemed a little bit more simple, like, don't smoke, it causes lung cancer. Like, girl, we're way past smoking. So far past smoking, like, I wish we could have a talk about cigarettes. That would be a lot easier. (laughs) I don't even know the names of the drugs that kids are now being exposed to. Cheese, is that a thing? Molly. Molly, that's old school, Dave.
3: <laughs> that's my generation. I used to be a raver. Okay. You did ecstasy when you were raving, not Molly.
0: That's true.
3: This is true.
0: Damn it, Dave. So we're gonna we're gonna double back to that one. But the point is, things have gotten completely out of control, and. Out of control in a way that is no longer as tangible as like cigarettes are bad, okay? Like drugs are bad, okay? They're very, very different <laughs> scenarios. So we've definitely escalated into a place where now things are are very crazy. So as an adult, right, we're all familiar with the term keeping up with the Joneses, right? As an adult, it was like you try to get the good car, you try to rock your ice if you're my ex-husband. Where I literally was like, "What up, DJ Colin? I'm like, wait a second, example first, son." <laughs> like, what, it looks awesome. Josh is laughing about that. <laughs> the Gucci bag, I think that's Gucci, is that Gucci? Yeah. Um, Top I left, so. I, don't I don't know.
2: know.
0: <laughs> right, I, I don't even know because I don't like give a crazy. shit. Yeah. I, I wear fake Gucci, that's how I do it, like this, see? <laughs> did it on purpose, it's fake, blinks, it's plastic, rhinestones. <laughs> I did it with my glue gun,
3: just kidding. <laughs>
0: And for kids, it used to be things like booze, cigarettes, partying, dressing a certain way, having sex too soon, doing drugs, right? The simple things in life, you guys. (laughs) Isn't that wild that we're like, fuck, I wish we could go back to the simple things in life. Like, can't we just have a regular conversation about, like, maybe wait till you're, like, I don't know, 17 to have sex? Like, that would be a normal conversation. But no, this is... We're here now. I can't even put pictures to these things without it being offensive, so I had to write them. I could have put pictures, but people might have gotten like wildly triggered. I would get absolutely canceled. So we're just, we're not gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write it out. Oh
2: my god.
0: I had to show this presentation to Mama Ob's before and I was like, can you just be my checks and balance to make sure that I'm not gonna like really wildly offend anyone? So let's start at the top. A specific political belief or alignment with an organization. True? True? All right, great. Um, Let's go to the top right. A special frame or filter on your social media profile to show your alignment with a social issue. Yeah. Yeah. Those are fun. Mm -hmm. Facebook suggests one specific one to me every day, and I'm like, delete, 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 delete. Uh, Let's go left. Non-monogamy pitched as spiritually woke or cool. Uh, Identifying as one of literally 46, I found out, sexual identities. Uh, Sorry, orientations. They're different. They're different. Everyone calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get triggered. They're different. 46 different sexual orientations, like pansexual. I I linked a bunch of stuff in this presentation, I will give it to you so you guys can actually look this up. I'm not making it up. Um, No longer identifying as a gender and participating in cancel culture on the social justice topic of the week, right? So whatever, like everyone's pissed off about that week, you have to also be pissed off about it. Um, I know from having owned companies in the past, companies now are pressured into also doing this all the time. Even if they're like, we don't wanna get involved, it's like, well, you have to get involved and you have to get involved on the right side, otherwise your company's gonna get canceled. I Literally got interviewed about this on a pretty famous magazine that was trying to slander me, but I had to hold my own. And I had to let them know, does it make any sense that companies are literally just doing what they're supposed to do and they're saying what they're supposed to say? Does that actually help anybody learn about the company's stance? No. No. It just, we're, we don't learn anything about them. If anything, the people that own the company or the people within the company, they just go anonymous and they just do what they're supposed to do and we don't learn anything except that they're probably cowards. So that's really what happens. It's not that like, you know, don't, I, I literally was asked like, don't you feel like you have to take a stand on this as blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, I don't actually. And he's like, well, don't you think it's your, your responsibility? No, I don't think it's my responsibility. So, but a lot of people will just immediately be like, okay, yes, sir, whatever you want me to do, whatever doesn't put my life and, and finances at risk, right? But again, that's that whole like five steps. Am I willing to take five steps in the direction I feel is right, even if maybe that's really scary and I feel like shitting my pants the whole time? Yeah, because this, while each one of these is not like, none of them is ever to shame or say that one of these is wrong, but these are really tough issues to navigate. They're very (laughs) complex. They're very nuanced. And to have peer pressure, especially even at young ages, now be about this, that's a really tough one to navigate. Do you have the skills to navigate that with your kids? you need like a college degree to navigate that with your kids. Literally, like in this, I'm not, I don't just mean a college degree, like a college <laughs> degree in this particular navigation. So we have this peer pressure now, not just coming from children themselves or from your peer groups or from your customers or whatever it is that your business operates with, whatever your community is, but we also have it coming from magazines, social media, social media influencers, Movies, TV, school curriculum, and of course, the looming threat of being canceled, which makes everyone just a little bit more afraid to take the five steps and they just keep doing what they're told. So we already mentioned this, but quite literally every single brand that you use or your kids use for the most part, they've all been forced in the last six months to do literally these things, every single one of them. And I'm telling you, it's not necessarily because every single one of them believes that these things are all right and just. It's, they're doing it out of fear and shame. And what it's doing is it's magnifying this message to make it seem, especially to a child, like it's the only truth. Right? It's, it's manipulating information that's being spread to just make them only see and experience one thing. Which, imagine if you did place that onto something like cigarettes. Like, if every single thing was like, no, cigarettes are definitely the cool thing to do, everyone would be smoking, right? If you take something and you make it something, one of our back simple things, and every single person were like, oh, yep, well, the media is telling me to do it, right? If you look back at the 50s, doctors were like, these are the cigarettes I recommend to smoke when you're pregnant. And everyone's like, well, if the doctor says that you smoke these while you're pregnant, I'm getting camels. But we didn't learn until years later where they're like, "Oops, That causes a lot of problems. So what we're trying to do here is instead of just blindly say, "Okay, okay, okay, out of potential fear and shame, or getting cancelled or getting pushed out of our whatever we perceive our tribe to be. Ask some deeper critical thinking questions so that instead of having to reflect back, like, oh, maybe pregnant people shouldn't have been smoking cigarettes. Maybe doctors shouldn't have been recommending cigarettes. We actually figure that out in the moment, because we're not dumb. We can figure these things out in the moment. We don't have to make the mistakes, then look backwards and be like, oopsies, better luck next time. We can do better. So everyone's familiar with what cancel culture is, correct? Has anyone ever attempted to be canceled? Listen, I, they've tried to cancel me so many times. I'm fucking uncancelable. You can't cancel me. It's official. It's impossible. When you try to get canceled by mainstream media, like, it, no. Mm mm. Didn't work. So, it's not fun. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> My little tiny heart was crushed into a million pieces many times. Um, I was sharing this with somebody else yesterday because they were saying, I don't remember, I think it was Lindsay. Lindsay, where are you? hi. She's like, I miss seeing you on social media. Um, I left Instagram very intentionally when my daughter was born. For, let's say, 70 to 80 percent of people that were really reaching out to me, positive things, asking for help, engaging with them in a really deep way, a solid 20 to 30 percent always were people that actually, I I mean, I, I don't even know these people, but truly dedicated all day long to harassing, saying negative things, and I'm not kidding, when I was about to give birth to Harley, this was when I made the decision, there was this girl that literally was probably like a hundred messages deep, I don't even know her, and she just was having a fight with herself, and then she's like, are you ever going to respond? I finally was like, I'm choosing not to engage with stuff like this because I'm about to have a baby and I don't want to put my baby at risk, and she's like, oh, well, isn't that white privilege? I was like, what? (laughs) What? like, I, I don't think we can actually navigate through this in a logical way. So agree to disagree. I'm trying to protect the life of my baby. She's like, again, white privilege. I was like, okay, we're done. We're good. And that was the day I decided to let go of Instagram. There's a certain point at which you have to decide for yourself. And it's one of the things we're going to be talking about. You know, I love how much I'm able to help people through that platform. But the amount I was also getting hurt by it and how much that was affecting me in my home life, not worth it anymore. Like I am sorry <coughs> to the people that I had to kind of bow out on that I was helping and that we did have a really positive exchange, but it's not worth it to the detriment of like my students in break, to my own mental health, to my family. So just be mindful of this because sometimes we are kind of rallied into canceling somebody and not always is that something that truly in our heart we feel is right and we're doing it out of fear, so just think before you jump on a bandwagon. Anytime there's a bandwagon, don't get on. Don't get on. I mean, bandwagons, I mean, Dave went on a bandwagon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but,
3: but my band but, is cool and they treat you and light.
0: <laughs> totally, and they play a vacuum cleaner. True story, the, the only time player. I've ever been dosed against my will in my whole life, fish concert. My only fish concert, the terrible experience.
3: The vacuum is amazing. No,
0: it's not. So just remember, anytime someone's trying to get you on the bandwagon, it's probably a good time to use your brake tools and ask yourself some questions. A good example of this would be if you've ever changed your lifestyle and started to eat really healthy and like, be very clean on how you're choosing your food, and all of a sudden your family's like, oh, come on eat bread, what is wrong with you? Oh, yeah. And then everyone's like, come on, you don't need it, right? Everyone starts chiming in, they're like, eat the bread. <laughs> eat the That's bread. basically what's eat happening. The <laughs> they don't like the idea that you're changing and that you might be changing for the better and that means that they might have to look in the mirror and think about the way they're living their lives. So it's easier for them to try to get you to go back to the way they were. Gina, we've had this conversation before about your culture. Then it is for them to reconcile the fact that you might be actually making a sovereign choice that's in your best interest. Like, how dare you do something good for yourself and break away from the group, right? But then that's the five steps, right? Then maybe you meet other people that have the same lifestyle as you and you guys start supporting each other. Then you change so much, right? Maybe you get rid of autoimmune symptoms. Maybe you start, you know, getting rid of anxiety meds. And then one family member, because you actually stuck to your guns, is going to come to you and they're like, can you actually tell me how you did it? Because that same family member that if you walk your walk long enough, they're the, the same one that would try to like force the bread down your mouth is the same one that when you actually do the thing that you said you were gonna do without crumbling, they're the one that's gonna come ask you for help. And that's true across the board. Mom, OBS. The one thing that, to,
1: to go with that is sometimes it's not that they don't eat bread with you, but they found what for them was their self-help and what mm-hmm. they needed to do to better themselves. And I think sometimes we get that confused Where it's like, I did this and it worked for me and it was better for me and I had these health benefits, right, but everyone and everyone's needs are different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you sticking to what was good for you didn't mean that you got everyone to do what you were doing. It just meant people were opening their eyes that they need to find out what's good for them Mm -hmm. and doing what was best for them. And that's how you create that culture of everyone being able to be true to themselves, not just the next bandwagon.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I will let you guys look through this one on your own, but I do include in a lot of these lectures different oh, yeah. case studies, peer-reviewed research, etc. And this is just a quote on how detrimental cancel culture is and how it's influencing adolescents. But I will leave that to you in the presentation. We will send everyone copies. So cancel culture, actually, yes, Yosani? Are, are you going to
1: go into, in, earlier you said you, you <clears throat> have to risk, when you were talking about kids, risk being alone. That, that happens with my kids, are you going to address what you do while you're alone? Like,
0: to, you not go go to, 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 to not go crazy and to not reach then? back I up. Like, yes, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in the Break Parenting lecture. Okay, so cancel culture is a catalyst 100% to shift social norms. Um, we didn't really have cancel culture before. This is definitely a relatively recent phenomenon. In the past, other things which we're also going to address are typically what shift a social norm. A social norm is a behavior or choice that becomes socially acceptable. There are different types of social norms which we're gonna get into and define a little bit. But essentially what happens, just like a trend, right? if a company was gonna actually move past a fad into something that was gonna stand the test of time, there has to be an inflection point. So when you see this green arrow, That's when enough people adopt it that now the trajectory mathematically changes drastically. So, for example, as a company, as an investor, you'd want to kind of use your psychic skills to get in when it's still kind of a fad and it hasn't hit that inflection point yet so that you can get your multiple as it goes up. Where we're at currently in some of our, I'll call it social devolution, is at this inflection point. We're at a very, very critical tipping point right now. And things have grown and escalated so much, and the idea of social peer pressure and cancel culture has grown so much that more and more people are just complying, complying, complying. So my issue with where we're at right now is that I believe, and I saw the moment, we had an opportunity to be open and inclusive and empathetic. And instead of being open, inclusive, and empathetic, we actually shifted that very much to an actual social priming event that is now twisting it and using it for an agenda. So instead of it being about being open and empathetic to all people, no matter what their issues are, what their perceived issues are, and teaching kids how to be empathetic and communicative with everybody, it's turned into something very different that's now priming people at all different levels of society to essentially recalibrate their brain to shift not just social norms, but mores, which we're going to get to, which are things that have actually been adopted into law, some of which, I don't know, like cannibalism, are pretty bad. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Pedophilia, cannibalism, pretty bad. Mm -hmm. We're going to get there. Sorry about that. (laughs) So we're dealing with a wide-scale priming event. Who knows what priming is?
2: Gloria. We are preemptively
0: set up to think certainly. Yes. So easiest example would be a group of people are in the room. There's a big yellow box on the screen and no one says anything. And then they're like, please grab your pens and papers and uh, write down the first fruit that comes to mind. What's everyone going to choose? Banana. Banana. A random person will choose lemon, but basically everyone will choose a yellow fruit. This happens. Did you choose something else? (laughs)
2: <laughs> so
0: when we're looking at something like this, priming happens in a variety of different ways, right? Priming can happen in our family. Priming can happen in our religion. Priming can happen in our school. It can happen through watching a movie. It can happen across the board in virtually anything that we experience. It can happen through sound. So priming exists everywhere. And if priming is done well, do you notice it? Only if you don't get primed. Only if you don't get primed. Or only if after the fact, you're like, oh. So I have a tendency, I have a photographic memory, so I have a tendency to always take pictures in my head of everything. And then sometimes at night when I can't sleep, my brain will pull pictures back up. And I'll like go back there and I'll be like, oh, weird. That, 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 that. So I kind of do it retrospectively in my head because I'm Rain Man. But I'm sure other people do it differently. So we're going to shift into talking about deviance. And what's important to remember, who, who? if you just like kind of think of the word deviant, you have like a negative connotation. Raise your hand. Do you feel like deviant has a negative connotation? Yes. Right? So it doesn't really. All deviance means is that here's the social norm trajectory. And someone's continually taking angles off of that social norm trajectory. So sometimes this is good. And sometimes this is Illegal. <laughs> so if we look at people like Rosa Parks or Martina Navratilova, clearly they were deviant at their time. But did they build something that was positive for humanity with their deviant choices? Mm-hmm. Right? Do you guys know who Martina Navratilova is? No. OK, I think she was the first like, really famous lesbian tennis player yeah. that really like, <laughs> hardcore paved the way. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Do you know that she got canceled last year?
4: Wow, is she really?
0: Yeah. She got into it with somebody who is a modern feminist versus what she views herself to be as a feminist, got full-scale canceled. So in 2020, if Martina Navratilova can get canceled, we're all screwed. Just going to say that. So instead of just immediately associating deviance with negativity, which it, it isn't, deviance just means that Here's the social standard for wherever you live, which by the way changes, right? It's different in the South than it is for New York City. Trust me. (laughs) It's different for the United States than it is for Russia, different in Japan. So deviance also is very subjective to where you are in the world. It's even subjective to where you are in the country. So try to remove that negative connotation of deviance because all deviance just means is that you see and acknowledge what the social standard is and you're like, nope. I quite literally, in a booty training in New York City, had this woman that flew there to take the training from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. She was pregnant. And she was like, I just have to tell you, I'm so excited. My husband and I have a lot of money and it's illegal to teach this to women in Saudi Arabia. But he built me an underground gym that has like all this security. And she's like, I'm just so excited because we're going to start the revolution in Saudi. And I was like, sweet. And I was like, and what happens if you get caught? She's like, oh, I get beheaded. And I'm like, oh. She's like, but trust me, I'm pregnant. I don't want my daughter to grow up in the Saudi that I grew up in. And I was like, oh, great. So she was just like, that was her thing. She's a deviant. Is she a positive deviant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. I would, I probably, if the chances were that I might get beheaded, I would probably not deviate. I'll be honest with you right now. Would anybody else maybe question their deviation if beheading was on the table?
2: Like 100% beheaded like
1: 100% Like if you got
0: caught, caught. yes. Oh,
2: yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no. Nah. Like, 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 right. No, I don't think there's
0: any talking way right out of it in Saudi. Um, so the point is some deviance changes the world. Not all deviance is illegal and for the detriment of our society. So let's look at the two different types of deviance. There's informal and formal. Informal deviance is what we've been talking about, right? Where here's the social norm, and you take maybe a 10 degree split off the social norm, but it's still not illegal. Formal deviance is what happens when it's actually been something that's been turned into a law, right? Like, maybe don't murder people. (laughs) We're gonna get into that in a second. (laughs) Don't worry. So often, informal deviance, if it exists for long enough, will be codified into law. A great example of this in recent times in Canada is that you can actually get in legal trouble for misgendering somebody, right? While that was very recently part of an informal form of deviance, now it's actually become formalized in Canada and I'm sure other places as well. So eventually, right, after that inflection point, if it keeps going, eventually it will become law. So we have to be very mindful of that. So positive deviance, right? Because now we've kind of shifted our potential connotation around the term. Positive deviance is something that actually does shift things for the better and does change humanity as a whole. So I think one of the easiest things to look at if you ever watched a show like Mad Men. Has anyone ever seen Mad Men? Um, It definitely shines a visual light on the sexism that clearly existed in the 50s. they were in the like marketing and advertising world and virtually every woman in the company was just systematically, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm trying to look for a nicer word than what's coming to mind. Help me out here. Um, objectified. It was pretty brutal, okay? So we can definitely say that there are certain aspects of positive deviance that have made women's lives better in 2021, true or false? True, right? I think women are probably better off now than they were in the 1950s. I think we can, all, we can all say that confidently. So sometimes positive deviance is exactly what creates positive social change. So we're gonna shift gears for a second because we know about what positive deviance is and sometimes that posit- positive deviance normalizes a behavior for the better. Right? That's what happens when we no longer have to deal with the sexism of the 50s. Something happened for the better. So if you take a look at what's on the right-hand side, this is called the deviation spiral. So if you start with the social norm, you can see how somebody just deviates, it normalizes, deviates, it normalizes, but eventually you'll get to a very drastically different place if you keep allowing this to happen with a certain type of decision or a certain type of outlook in life. It is gradual although I think maybe we can all attest to the fact that maybe over the last, let's say, three years, things have been pretty exponential. Agree? Do we feel like things have exponentially shifted, especially in the last two years? Right? Pretty intense. And often this is gradual, and I think we can also attest to the fact that natural deviation, right, like not actually pushed upon or manipulated by an outside force would be more gradual, right? It would naturally, like nature occurs in spirals, but what we're seeing right now is nothing like a natural spiral, which shows us that it's not a natural deviation cycle. It is a manipulated deviation cycle. Agree? Does that make sense? Yeah.
3: so, So this is basically a pushed upon Form of evolution that you're calling devolution 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 Mm -hmm. but this is like how nature works to evolve into a better species right yes
0: okay so this natural deviation spiral right the the shifts are not massive the shifts are small they normalize small they normalize what's happening now would be like a 180 and then an attempt to coordinatedly normalize something outside of just people shifting their opinions naturally. We don't, there's not a lot of natural opinion shifting happening these days. So where this gets really sticky (laughs) is that as human beings, our natural desire on an individual level until we do something like break or something else that helps us kind of get through our darkest parts and work through them and, and heal them. Our desire at a very core level, you know, Carl Jung describes this as the shadow, is to basically try to normalize our really dark parts. Like, mm, it's not a me problem. Like we all are like this, right? You just kind of you, you take your, your darkest pieces or your worst thoughts or worst behaviors. And you justify it in some way in your head. You make justifications. You rationalize it. You're like, oh, my whole family's like this, right? There's something that goes with it, rather than saying like, I really don't like this about myself. I really want to change it. So. At the deepest core level, we have this desire to just kind of make excuses and normalize things and just be like, oh, it's just like, it's just who we are. We all do this. But this happens, again, the micro mimics the macro. This is happening on the macro scale. So, right now, there are many aspects of what's happening where it's actually our collective humanity's desire to just normalize the darkest pieces of ourselves so that we don't actually have to do the work to heal them. We just make them okay with everybody. So, I'll use this example. The other day was Mental Health Awareness Day. Did everybody see that? So, yes. And, and if anyone's ever seen some of my, late, my previous lectures, I gave a whole breakdown, which I'm happy to share with you, in that kind of tools breakdown of how we've gone through different phases in our healing of mental health over the generations. And I describe in the very first stage, we used to be in the hiding phase where really the answer to that was like mental institutions and literally like, oh, my kid's got a mental illness. We're just going to kick you out the door and pretend it never happened Uh, because it was so heavily stigmatized that you literally were like, I don't want this kid to ruin all my other kids' lives. So like, we're going to pretend I never had you. That's a pretty dark ass place to be where you're like, let's pretend you didn't exist. So thankfully we got out of that phase, but we got stuck in what I refer to as the bonding phase for a really long time. So if we take a look at what I'm sure people's feeds looked like on Mental Health Awareness Day, we've moved from not wanting to stigmatize mental health to now everyone wanting to make their profiles clickable to share their mental health story. And quite often in the sharing of that, there is language that's very much about, as Angela described at our last break live, like it's just this way and I'm owning it right? There's not a desire like, I want to move through this, I want to move past this, I want to heal this, I don't want to pass this on to my kids. It's kind of just like a, I have this, hear me roar, which is not productive to society. So instead of, which I believe, of course it shouldn't be stigmatized, but now we're putting it up on a pedestal in a very bizarre way that now, in a way, makes it seem kind of cool for kids, right? This is why cutting got cool. Does anyone remember when cutting literally got cool? Cutting's not cool, but it actually got trendy. It was trendy to slice your own body open. This is what happens when we accidentally try to normalize our own darkness, right? When you put that on a bunch of kids' movies, they're like, oh, maybe that's the way I can feel better. And then they're like, I wonder why kids are cutting themselves. Maybe stop fucking putting it in their movies and TV content because you're literally planting that image and activity in their head. And then they're like, oh, maybe that's the answer. Let me try it. Yes? Yes
4: i um, I noticed with my nieces and nephews that the assimilation of mental illness is a fad.
0: Oh it's oh it's a hundred percent a fad this right thing.
4: now. And it's like they're happy, they're okay kids, they are they're, they're okay and it's like I've gotta find a reason why I should be depressed and need to take medication or hurt myself. Yes. Yep. yep. Yes, and it's yep. like yes. oh my god, where did that come from?
0: Well my depression. We're gonna get there. Yeah. <laughs> Money. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, as Dave said, you got to make that money. A large part of it, which we're going to get to, a mentally ill collective is very easily preyed upon by marketing and advertising dollars. I mean, it, I hate that it's that simple, but, like, it's that simple. Um, I mean, obviously, there are a variety of other choices that are really easy to prime somebody into when they're also mentally unstable that are much broader reaching, like turning things into laws. So we're going to get there, but let's take a pit stop at intrusive thoughts because intrusive thoughts are super fun. Before we go to happy land on Sunday night, let's stop at intrusive thoughts. So does anybody experience intrusive thoughts or at least did prior to break? Okay, so plot twist, everyone experiences intrusive thoughts. And one of the things in my work that I am so dedicated to teaching is how to identify which is an intrusive thought and which is a thought that you were intentionally thinking. So in the self-study, you're like, what? (laughs) So in the self-study, there's a page, I don't know what page it is, but maybe Dr. Gloria has this in her memory banks. Um, Your thoughts are not your own, or you are not your thoughts, Um, which helps you understand how much of the internal thought processing that your brain's hard drive does are not actually you thinking. And that can feel really intense and dissociating for a lot of people, because we like to think that there isn't something else thinking in our head. But there is. And you're going to be able to, through break method, learn how to hear the difference. There's a very distinct difference in how the thoughts show up, the language of the thoughts, the theme of the thoughts. And it's so frequent that somebody would come to me and they're like, oh, I have these thoughts. And they assume that it must be from something that they did in their lives or some sort of like hidden trauma that they've had. Do you know how often it actually comes from a movie that they saw? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like 90% of the time. I have people that are like, I must have been X, Y, Z when I was seven or eight because and I'm like, oh, did you watch this or this or this movie? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and and I ask them the follow up questions. And they're like, I'm mind blown. Because it really is that simple. You only know what you know until you know something else. And as soon as a visual or a thought or a sequence is planted in your head, your brain is going to keep trying to solve it. Why would that happen? Why would that happen, right? Why would a human being do that? And then your brain, which now has a picture of it, will keep, let's go back to the deviation spiral, hold up. Once your brain has this thought pattern, right, that's now been primed into it, your brain, as it keeps trying to understand it, it's going to manipulate it and move it around because the brain is inherently curious. The brain is a lab. So it's going to keep trying to play it out in these different scenarios. Oh, well, like, why would I tie somebody up with a rope, right? Like, I mean, when you see, I'm going to get into a story about that from a client. When you're five and you get to watch a horror movie with your dad and it's like, oh, dad's letting me watch this horror movie. And it's like, you literally just robbed your kid of their entire childhood. Way to go that rope is going to become a character in other things, right? That blood is going to become a character in other things. That scary creature might pop up in other ways. Yes? So
2: when
1: I was, and it's like kind of all, it seems silly now, but it's kind of all just clicking. When I was probably in my early teens, my grandma and all my aunts would pass around these serial killer books, and I read like so many serial killer books. I walked around like so afraid in life, and with these like, Crazy uh, worst case scenarios in my head all the time.
0: Um, I'm shocked. Be now,
1: but at the time, like I would, I'm just like, what's wrong with me? Why do I have these in my head and n- like never make this association until I took break in the last couple of years of realizing how much these things like really affect us.
0: Oh, they affect you on the most base, primal level, and the worst part is they often affect you mostly on your subconscious. So consciously, you're not necessarily actively thinking it, but it's still informing your behavior and your decision making, uh, like the most basic levels all the time. Like when you leave your house, when you're walking to your car, like there's a part of your brain that thinks it's going to get like kidnapped as it's walking to the car. Even if consciously you're like, I'm good, your sympathetic nervous system's like, No, you're not. Watch me give you a panic attack, <laughs> Gina. <laughs> I was uh, I
4: always watched scary movies as a kid and jaws <laughs> my life it's so bad so bad that I don't know I recognize that I wasn't just afraid of the water I'm afraid of the water because of the movie I can't even get to, into a pool without someone I a two year old could be in the pool and I'm safe I couldn't take them there has
0: to be someone else in there so the shark gets them first
2: <laughs> yeah. okay. get the, the two year old they nice and
0: <laughs> bacon (laughs) okay this is a true story last week I saw a meme that was like an underwater picture in a pool and it had a huge shark and it just said on the top like finally my childhood fears have come to life (laughs) okay who's seen practical magic Okay, so the sisters are witches, right? It's actually a great, great movie. But there is kind of a demonic character in it. So my bad. The, remember Nicole Kidman's boyfriend, Johnny whatever, Angel Love? Um, he's actually the devil and they have to, like, kill him and all these, like, frogs and shit come out of him. Yeah. I'm sorry, honey. What age were you? <laughs> you? You were scared for a long time. Yeah. And you... No, and you couldn't sleep for a while. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to hold it all together because she's in a (laughs) bed and hold it all together. She's like, don't worry. I'm doing break. All right. I'm going to go sit down. She's just here keeping it real. Listen, I'm just glad she said practical magic. I, I would say the worst movies I've let her watch are comedies. Like, I've let her watch some really pretty raunchy comedies. Mike and Dave need wedding dates? I don't know. She said, yeah. Yeah. Guys, humor is different. No, it's not. It's still bad. Okay. So, intrusive thoughts. Let's bring it back. So, often intrusive thoughts can be sexual in nature. They can be really dark, really creepy. They can have serial killers. They can even like place pictures of you doing things that you've actually seen other people do, which, how does that make you feel? If you watch something that's like horrifying, then all of a sudden you're the character doing it, how's that going to make you feel? Does it make you feel like a good human? No. <laughs> so often, intrusive thoughts come from early priming that just goes unrecognized. And as I mentioned with the deviation spiral, and I gave the example of the rope, which we're gonna go into in the sex fantasy and media priming one, your brain starts to play around with it. Maybe it's a flash of the movie, and then the next time, like, you've got the rope, and then the next time, right, it just keeps changing because the brain is trying to figure out how this could be, because it seems so outside of the scope of what it knew before that it's trying to problem solve. When we let intrusive thoughts keep having more time at the microphone, We eventually lose sight of who we are and who those intrusive thoughts are, right? When we kind of merge into one thing, we don't realize that they're two distinct, separate thought processes. And this could lead somebody to OCD and panic attacks, but it certainly has led people to be serial killers and pedophiles. These same intrusive thoughts where, you know, you watch the serial killer getting (laughs) interviewed on a camera and they're like, I just, the devil kept telling me to kill them. It's like, okay. Or maybe it was an intrusive thought process that nobody caught on earlier and wasn't able to help you reconcile, right? Because if it happens for so long, eventually it feels very real and very true. So do we think it's probably pretty important to A, acknowledge our intrusive thoughts rather than let them keep running passively, yeah? And also start to clearly delineate who we are versus who this thought process is? Very important. So let's take a little peek at what Carl Jung describes as the shadow, because I feel like also in today's society, especially in what I would call kind of like the pseudo-spiritual conscious world. I feel like, is that a good descriptor? Pseudo-spiritual conscious? Okay, falsely, whatever it is. Huh, what was your word? So, I'm not says the pastor. She's like, it's garbage. Okay, I'm trying to find nicer descriptors, but sure, a little garbagey. Um. There is a lot of emphasis on <clears throat> embracing your shadow, like we all have a shadow. Get to know your shadow, don't hide your shadow. Do we see how this is kind of at odds with actually healing, anyone, anyone, yes. right? So yes, I agree, we shouldn't hide from our shadow, we shouldn't pretend it's not there, we shouldn't disconnect from it, but what should we do with it? Heal it, Heal it right? Do we want to be walking around with this big, like, open, gaping hole of dark shadow on us all the time where we're like, I let it out to play sometimes. <laughs> because that's basically what this pseudo-spiritual consciousness community does. They literally, they're like, I, I compartmentalize. I'm this person then I let my shadow out to play. Like, that doesn't sound very good for humanity. So if we look at how Carl Jung describes the shadow, he's talking about the darkest parts of your personality, which obviously in break from our very last lecture, we know the personality is something very distinctly different. The darkest parts of your personality that seek to be essentially normalized within yourself, where you make yourself feel like they're okay and you want to accept them, and if they're ever called into question by somebody else, your brain reflexively seeks to project vomited onto somebody else, like mm, that's a you problem. Like, oh, you don't like the way I flirt with all these other partners. That sounds like a you problem. Maybe you need to work on your jealousy, right? Maybe, or maybe not. We need to look at the relationship a little bit deeper. This happens all the time in the polyamory community, especially in the pseudo-spiritual community, right? There's like different levels to this stuff, so. The most simple way to put the shadow stuff is that the shadow side, which will include all of our intrusive thought patterns, all of our brain patterns, and every single piece of our unresolved trauma, will seek to actually project onto others. And then we will seek to normalize it across the board. So for humanity as a collective, we are going to attempt to normalize all of our collective trauma so that we don't have to feel like we're alone anymore. Like, I don't have to feel ashamed. We all have mental illness, see? Isn't that, it's so much easier. I don't have to feel bad about the work I have to do because we're all broken. This is true, but do we feel like that's the best for humanity, for us to just say that and then stay? Right, so I know that some of these things, it's like something can be true and not true at the same time. What I'm trying to get through here is that while we shouldn't stigmatize something, we also at the same time shouldn't just straight out normalize it. Because that's a pendulum swing that's very dangerous. We're literally going from one extreme to the other extreme. And do we think that that's ever where humanity actually like, exists in its best qualities at extremes? No. no. So we have a rising exponentially mental health crisis. Agree? It's pretty bad. I think COVID certainly made it much, much, much worse. We're already incredibly disconnected from each other. We're already eyes down in every sort of tech gadget, which is going to only further make us feel disconnected from other human beings. Now, there are certain facets of society in which you are being forced into certain groupthink where now You're part of a group which should make you feel safe, but you also are potentially feeling like you could get bullied or canceled at any point in time, right? There's just, there's a shift now where you're always thinking about what other people are thinking rather than just living your life. That's called fear. But we're woke. (laughs) Mic drop. But that's just called fear. So as a child, right, I mentioned this last night, what happens to you with repetition in your earliest phases stops your ability to be innocent, present, and curious. Period, full stop, right? It starts making you think about what if or what happened in the past to keep myself safe in the present. How can I think about the different ways I can act in the future to keep myself safe in the present? None of those things are actually present. You can't be thinking about the past or the future if you're present. It's a lot. But the point here is As our mental health crisis goes like this, we're all collectively losing presence. And as all of these societal pressures are making us fear being judged or labeled or losing our ability to exist in our in-group, we're always now going to be in fear, which again pushes us more out of presence. One of the best places for us to be in our life is presence. We're able to make really good decisions from there but we've stopped allowing ourselves to set up the pathway for us to be present. And I know a lot of meditation techniques will be like, you just have to sit there and think of being present. No, tis not that simple. I wish it was. And honestly, if I had a, I mean, I'm trying to find a gentle way to say this. Let's say this. I work with a lot of clients one-on-one who literally come to me because they're like, I heard that you're basically like a witch doctor and I've spent like a million dollars trying to help myself. I'm like, please, God, please, God, help me. I'm like, all right, I guess you're really willing to do anything now. <laughs> Welcome to Witch Doctor Busy. Um, but I work with a lot of these people and, you know, they're the the person that has spent like, the $10,000 here, the $20,000, like the person that's like, I'm gonna wave my hands and you're gonna give me a million dollars and I'm gonna make your life better, right? Like they just kept trying to do everything. And it's pretty consistent that a lot of them got pulled into certain types of meditation practices that I would bet any amount of money made their intrusive thought patterns exponentially worse. So this is the case for somebody that messes around in the spiritual realms. Thank you, Sarai, for that. She's like, woo! Amen. Okay. So I'm not saying meditation is bad. I'm saying if your deep subconscious intrusive thoughts are currently unreconciled and creating a lot of your darkness, meditation, mm mm. You're literally deeply connecting to that through meditation. You might sit there and try to be like, I am nothing, we are nothing, or like meditate on a point. But either way, you are fueling that part of yourself rather than processing it. So Almost in every single case, when I have clients that have these really intensified intrusive thought patterns, and I ask them, are you meditating? And I get to understand their meditation practice. I'm like, I'm going to ask you to do one thing for me. Can you do it? And they're like, yeah, sure, anything. I'm like, fucking stop meditating, please. They're like, what? Like, yeah, you can go back to it after you're better, but please don't do it right now while we're working through this stuff. Because as you're working through this stuff, your head is not your safe place. That's the problem. Like, we want our head, and I love this, um, on one of the testimonial videos, Rachel Barber, who was a graduate a long time ago, she said it, like, I didn't realize when I came in to break how much background noise and thought process was in my head all the time. She was like, I literally can walk on the street and, like, hear the trees and feel the breeze, and my head is quiet. Most people don't have that. That is presence. You're not going to get that by just trying really hard for 20 minutes a day to think about one thing. That comes through actually healing your brain. You have to actually heal all of the brain patterns that are preventing you from getting to that place. That's not accidental. That takes work. And I know a lot of people want to show up and be like, can't you just do the work for me? No, I can't. Yes, Gina. I think there's this dangerously fine line between
4: an assimilation of mental illness and real mental illness. People are born with chemical illness. Yes. And what happens is I think we generalize, I'm depressed, I'm sad, and not putting any of this down because it's all real stuff. But, but then we go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, take this pill because you have a mental illness. When it's not a mental illness, but now we put it into mental illness, and it's, a, it's this big, b- blurry ball.
0: Totally agree.
4: Instead of saying I have transitional issues that are making me feel sad, and I need to work through
0: them. Well, and you guys know I'm going through break, which not all of you have, but I'm sure you will. It's all just a brain pattern. And I actually will show you and prove to you how every label is really just a very specific pattern. And you can even see how certain patterns along a (laughs) spectrum could get called like this label or that label. But... You heal everything the same way. It's I would love to think that this is rocket science. It's not rocket science. It's part of my biggest, deepest frustration in life. Why is nobody else doing this? Why? I don't get it. Like, I am never thought of myself as Nikola Tesla, but, you know, fucking maybe.
1: <laughs>
0: but here's the one thing I know, and this is actually true across the board for all inventors, in general, if you look at some of the like most revolutionary inventors of all time that brought through information, probably, that came from I don't even know where, other planets, other realms, who the hell knows, they always pop up in threes. So around the same time, people bring through similar information at the same time. So if anyone ever finds my other two, please let me know. <laughs> but the truth is this is very simple, and it's why anytime somebody wants to come to me and then just be like, well, this is my label, this is my label, this is what my th- this is what we're working on in therapy, I from the get-go, I'm like, listen, this is not to denigrate your therapist or any of the work that you've already done, but I'm going to be able to serve you better if I don't know any of this because I don't need you to prime me with all the ways that you think you're fucked up because, quite frankly, most of the things people come to me thinking are the problems are never the problems. Like, almost never. So... Red Herrings, if anyone ever used to read Nancy Drew books or Hardy Boy's books, that was my jam. I used to love figuring out like where was the misleading information so I could still crack the code. Like that might be why I am who I am today. But quite often when you come and you're like, oh, it's because my dad left when I was three, I'm like, no, it's not, it's just not. Give me something else. (laughs) (laughs) So keep in mind, as we're going through, like you said, the labels, one of the things that I would love to see happen in let's say five to 10 years, I would love to see all those labels disappear. I don't think they help anybody. No, they
4: don't.
0: Because then people latch onto them and then they like will go read the DSM manual and then they're going to lean heavier into those behaviors because they start to identify with them. Carrie's literally doing acro yoga over there. Yeah. <laughs> this is adorable. So. I'm gonna try to unsee it, (laughs) beep! I can't, I have a photographic memory. (laughs) It'll be there forever, it will haunt me for the next 10 years. So mental health, definitely on the rise. Mental health issues, I should say, definitely not mental health. Hopefully, after we crack the code on trying to get break to everybody. Um, But what happens is that when our mental health crisis is on the rise, we are very easily manipulated by external forces right we're quick to take the label we're quick to be told oh well don't do it this way do it this way like i said we saw the normal deviation spiral we are not anywhere near normal deviation spiral right now so the evidence is everywhere that it's being manipulated from something else so it really is time for us to realize with how much money is spent trying to build companies and build tech gadgets and build apps if they wanted to fix this could we have probably fixed it by now but nobody want, they don't wanna fix it. They wanna keep making it worse. Right? They make money and they're just, it, we are easily controlled that way. It's that simple. So I would say if there's one huge takeaway from the weekend, tis this. As our mental health declines, that which we collectively attempt to normalize becomes incredibly problematic for our societal evolution. It's that simple. If we keep seeking to normalize our unhealed parts, Society will go on the shitter. It's happened before. You can look back in history, right? The Roman culture, the Greek culture, eventually, they all devolve. But I don't believe that we have to, right? We just, for whatever reason, keep not learning the lesson and keep letting some external influence force us to like, oh, they've had their time. <laughs> Let's send them back to the shitter. I really think that we can keep going in the very opposite direction as we are currently, but we need to actually wake up. So one of the ways that things get normalized is through creativity and art. And sorry, Sarai, did you have a question a few minutes ago? I remembered you had your hand up. Do you have a question? No? Don't worry about it. You're sure? If it comes back up, you let me know. Yes? Oh just, just like our society is kind of going towards a kind of a big tech bubble
3: and a big um, organizational bubble. That's what Some may call it the singularity. The singularity. Okay. So we've done that with mental health. We've done that with society, society and relationships, where instead of going out and trying to find people that need what we need, we prime them to need what we need mm-hmm. and sell
0: them what we have. Yes, right. absolutely. So
3: we sell people that there like this, like this. This drug company use that one, that must you know, use that type of client. We're creating mm-hmm. the problem, so we can provide the solution.
0: Absolutely. And then we keep agitating the problem through marketing. Literally the number one marketing tactic is agitate the pain point. Well, that doesn't sound like it's in humanity's best interest. Like, of-
3: Every time someone's
0: coming, they're like, You need to agitate the pain point more. I'm like, that's fucked up. I'm not gonna do that. Like they know they have a problem. I don't need to sit there and be like meop, 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 Which literally I've had people come reach out to me and they're like, Hey, who does your advertising? I'm like, Me. They're like, So you like you write it? I'm like, Yeah, I write it. They're like, You do the images? Yeah, I do the images. They're like, it just there's something different about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm not trying to take advantage of people. That's the difference. I'm not trying to follow like a marketing formula. I actually give a shit. So I would love to see more of that, but it seems that Facebook is not taking a liking to people actually trying to help people. Yes, Heather. And
2: to be fair, if you've never been in that marketing world, um, it's uh, it's scary. I I, I had
1: had a very small instance with it and. I just didn't realize
0: how much manipulation goes into it. It's, 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 it's intentional. Yeah, intentional manipulation. It's yeah. terrible.
2: Yeah, it
0: really is. And to be able to do it, you kind of have to be at an impasse with your moral compass. Like a, like a, yeah. You have to be I'm like, sorry, guys. But it's just, it's true. It is. There has to be a point, And maybe you're doing it for monetary gain, or maybe you're doing it because you perceive that you have to, to take care of your family. but. At a certain point, this is where, right, if the general marketing standard is to do A, B, C, D, but you know in your heart it's actually taking advantage of humanity, like, why not take the five steps and be an industry disruptor?
2: Well, have you seen that Netflix documentary that's yes. with all of them who have, like, left the companies outing it all and it just turned into something it wasn't meant to be turned into a monster.
0: And the bad news is if Netflix is publishing that, it means it's 1 million times worse because Netflix is that. So anything that ne- if Netflix is willing to like leak out a little bit of truth, you know it's so much worse than that.
3: Yes. And if it has a certain number of views, it will be removed. <laughs> yes,
0: also also true. So, one of the things that we also want to look to when we're thinking about normalization, right? Because we can think very easily about magazines and newspaper articles and like BuzzFeed quizzes that come through your Facebook feed. But art is a huge way that these things get normalized. So the process of creativity is often, I used to be married to an artist, the process of art in many ways is you trying to experience and process your deepest, darkest traumas either through a medium like paint or through a medium like singing or through a medium like video, right? Typically, uh, the art that somebody generates is a direct result of their internal trauma and unprocessed pain. So what we see happens often is that art and therefore culture become the biggest tools for normalization. I am here to tell you that if I look back 10 years ago, I used to have a ton of rap music in my workouts. I cannot listen to a rap song now. i have literally, I'm not a baby. I will start crying. I actually like cry for humanity. I cry for the kids that actually listen to this stuff. The lyrics are so dark and terrible and programming, it literally hurts my soul. So we have to be mindful that a lot of times where the normalization is coming from is coming from music it's coming from music videos right and often we don't really pay attention to this because we're like oh it's just music i triple dog dare you to try to listen to today's music like i miss the 90s so so bad even like not i listen i love like 90s hip-hop at least it was like a little bit more straightforward. Sure, there was some violence in there, there was some F the police stuff, but it was just like a little bit little bit cleaner, a little bit more high vibe, as high vibe as F the police can be. I don't know, it's like not that high vibe, but if you compare it to what's happening today and what comes out of, I don't know, Future's mouth or The weekend's mouth, oh my God. So be mindful with your kids, right? This isn't like, I'm not here trying to like, turn y'all into Footloose and be like, your kids can't dance anymore. <laughs> But, but take, take the time to make sure this is actually what you want your kids absorbing into their brain. Because it's, it's going to go in there. Yes, Mom OBS.
1: Well, what's interesting is, you know, coming from my husband's background, my background, there's actually a whole bunch of different documentaries about how the rap industry started with people talking about their stories, talking about their lives and how the record companies wanted to monopolize and make money off of them and pay them so small amounts. And then they started putting people out there that never had those experiences, never knew what that was, and they're putting out these same messages. So it was really exploiting the reality and, and the pain that people oh, yeah. were trying to fight and break through. And so it's just it's fascinating to see that. Because we, we still, there's certain local from LA, right, in our homies, but they're writing about their lives and they're trying to make a change and a difference. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's been interesting to watch that evolution like your like 90s. I'm like, man, bring me back to the 70s. <laughs> well,
0: that too. I mean, we even listened to the 50s in our house. And you actually
1: had musicians, you didn't have computers synthesizing every backup instrument.
0: Well, and that's a whole separate thing, but the actual tonal frequency of okay. music now is actually intended to fracture your brains too. <sighs> I mean, we won't get into that. <laughs> don't worry about that. We'll save that for later. Um, one thing to piggyback on that, if you don't know about it, now you know. Um, I believe it was Ghostface Killer. <laughs> Listen, one of my closest friends in the whole world actually helped found Wu Tang, so I actually have like talked to a bunch of them on the phone. They're really cool. Um, and again, great example. Some of their lyrics pretty bad. A lot of their lyrics actually pretty spiritual and pretty wild, actually, for the time. Um, but this isn't about rap, although this particular story is. So I believe it was Ghostface Killer went um, public and read a statement that a whole bunch of the biggest rap artists in the late 90s were asked to go to a meeting somewhere in LA. Um, They weren't told the location, but their managers and their agents were like, you have to go. And they all went, and before they were able to walk in, they were all asked to sign an NDA. And a bunch of them were like, Psh, I'm not well, I'm not going to, they're gangsters. They're like, I'm not going to sign an NDA without knowing like who's in there. Like, are you high? So some of them left, but a lot of them stayed because they were in it for the money. And they, what they described was that they were at a round table and that there were other people in another room that were part of a different round table that they didn't get to see. And they were all handed contracts that said very specifically, this is how you're going to change your music. The music industry, specifically the rap industry, just invested in the private prison system, and we need your lyrics to shift to actually helping incarcerate more people. Yep, yep. Okay? So the next time you're like, I wonder why, whoop whoa like, how did that happen so quickly? Like, that wasn't a natural <laughs> deviation. No, it's not. The people that own the record labels bought out the stock in private prisons and had to up their numbers and get people to commit more crime. How do you do that? You get people to change their lyrics. And a lot of those rappers ended up coming forward after the fact and being like, I have to make amends. Like, I literally spent however many years of my career putting my own people in prison There's with my lyrics.
2: lyrics.
0: You put them on YouTube so, one of them
1: talks about all
0: that. Yeah, so I believe that's Ghostface Killa. He does it on a, um, in a podcast. Yeah. Another great person to look into would be Prodigy from Mob Deep. He went hard on exposing this stuff. Literally until he died. So I was like, I love Mob Deep. <laughs> See, I told you, East Coast hip hop. <laughs> so, yes? One question. You said
2: yeah. we were going to go into it, but about tonal frequencies, is, can you share something later? Yes,
0: I can share, I can share some Skrillex. stuff tomorrow. Okay. Skrillex. <laughs> Skrillex will scramble your brain. Um, no, so there's. There's a specific hertz setting that music is supposed to come through naturally, how your brain likes to receive it. And there is a very specific switch, I believe in the mid-30s to late 30s, where they actually changed how that was transmitted. So we can go through that tomorrow. Okay, so if you guys wanna dig into this, this gives you a little bit of information on just kind of exploring over the years how many different artists, their entire art process was to process their pain, right? I think one can think of like Van Gogh, he's the one that chopped off, was it Van Gogh or Picasso? Van Gogh chopped off his ear. Totally normal. Let's normalize that. Let's all chop off of our ears. Um, So art and media can be a massive normalization tool. Again, it could be paintings, it could be um, music, it could be movies. And right now, unfortunately, what we're seeing even in the mainstream media is we're seeing certain ta- like things that were not just taboo, but we're going to find in a second, they're actually called mores, which are beyond social norms. They're something that society has to follow because they are not just taboo, but very, very illegal. We're actually seeing that there's an attempt to normalize some of these things. These are both linked to articles where they actually try to normalize cannibalism, and these are linked to articles in the mainstream media where they're actually trying to normalize pedophilia. Um, do we think that there's any instance in which it would be okay to normalize either of those two things? No. Right? I mean, is there any upside? Does anyone see any upside? Probably not. Zombie apocalypse? Zombie apocalypse? (laughs) Like, literally, this article in the cannibalism one will blow your mind. And it literally is one of, like, 20 that came out all around the same time. So, if they're willing to try to normalize those things, like, what at some point, what's going to be left? Will we literally just be, I mean... Will we literally just be like dark, animalistic Lord creatures that have no, yeah, Lord of the Flies, all just like, you know. I mean, and I'm gonna get there. I'm sure people, has anyone actually seen the movie, The Hunt? No. Don't
1: they hunt humans? They yeah, know? they hunt humans. Like Dr. Moreau's well,
0: Island. Oh yeah, we're gonna get there. But you're only allowed to hunt people that have views that are against the social standard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're trying to normalize. Okay, so the origin intention Right? Because this is very important. Because I'm not saying that as we normalize these things, it always starts off in a bad place. Because I feel like a lot of what we're dealing with today, it like that natural deviation spiral is where we started. And then something was like, oh, yeah, I can exploit the fuck out of this. Then something else got in there and was like, let's speed this thing along. I don't believe that a lot of what we're dealing with started from a bad place. We started from a really positive intention of wanting to be more open, more inclusive, more empathetic toward everyone's individuality. But it most certainly got exploited and turned into something else. We can see that by the complete removal of this natural deviation spiral. So these things are really nuanced and it's not that like this is bad and that's good. We're watching this constant pendulum swing and I leave it to you to decide what you feel navigating through all this stuff is best for your humanity personally, for your family's humanity, for collective humanity, because it's gonna be slightly different for everybody, but it certainly shouldn't exist on these end sides of the pendulum swing. So it is important to remember that we can accidentally go from positive intention and empathy to something that's very priming and fracturing, which is exactly what we're dealing with right now, especially as it relates to kids, which we're gonna get into tomorrow. Kids are my number one concern right now. Like, I care about you guys, but like our kids are really not in a good situation right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, tell them, mom. <laughs> so we need to stop this process of consistently trying to normalize our shadow, and instead, we really do need to heal it. So let's take a little jaunt into the hunt. So this movie actually came out. People actually watched this and The shocking part is this isn't even, you know how sometimes movies will come out in like twos and threes where they're like similar content? This was one of a few that came out around this time that literally is open season for hunting people that have viewpoints that differ from yours, like the in group. So if we're now trying to normalize this and trivialize this and make it funny, we're probably heading down a bad path, yeah? So. When we look at social norms, there are a few examples we can think of from the past that clearly didn't turn out great. One would be foot binding in China. Has anybody ever seen what feet looked like after they've been binded? You have? Yeah? Um, it's pretty brutal. And if you think about it now, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody do that? It looks really painful. It, just somebody decided smaller feet were better feet. And women were like, great, I'm going to turn my size 10 into a 4, even if that means I'm literally breaking my foot. So foot binding really makes no sense, but somehow people were still convinced en masse to do it because the power group was like, no, you're only socially acceptable if you have small feet. Genital mutilation in Africa, still practiced, still very much normalized in certain cultures. I think we can all say really horrific across the board, but in certain cultures, that is the standard. That's what they do. I think we can probably also look to World War II Germany, which perhaps we can actually see that they went through, in many ways, a moment like we're going through where things were very different and there was a little bit of agitation and they started to kind of deviate a little bit and then somebody came in and really shift the deviation of social norms where maybe somebody never thought about what a Jew meant, they just kind of lived their lives and then somebody planted the seed Jews are the reason for all of your problems. And they're like, what, are they? And then you keep building, 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 and next thing you know, all people are like, well, I'm fine with all the Jews getting killed. When like 10 years before, nobody would have ever been open to that thought process. But you do it little by little, you prime it, you change the social atmosphere, and then eventually people start complying with things that are absolutely asinine. So why did we let something like this happen? Can anybody explain why they think people in Germany just kind of let that happen? Fear. Fear. Peer yes. Pressure peer, pressure, peer pressure,
1: fear, right? Don't forget acid Bully. disfiguration.
0: Yes, I mean, there's so much. World War II was a nightmare. Germany definitely made of nightmarish things. But in general, I mean, the only reason people went along with it was for fear and because they were being socially pressured to do so. And there are actually specific aspects that go along with this. So social sanctions are certainly something that was very real for them. Where you don't want to get punished by the group. And believe me, the punishment in Germany was very severe, right? Even for just acknowledging any sort of discontent with an idea, you could get killed or be taken away from your family. And this is maybe the most important me, right? The group membership one, I feel like we've really covered that. Many social norms are part of a child's early education. Right? They're indoctrinated into a kid the youngest kids that grew up during that ta- that inflection point where the social norms were shifting in germany they grew up just literally like chanting that jews were bad and they just they didn't think they didn't have any other thought process there was no other thought process that was optional to them they didn't know anything else they only knew what they knew so a lot of this happens on a very specific childhood indoctrination level where if they can't, if they have to like work really hard to get us to think a certain way, it's a hell of a lot easier with kids. And that's why I'm so concerned about what's going on with kids today. Then the biggest thing to remember, which I believe is this kind of shift out of that natural deviation spiral, is that power groups often use policies and laws to actually shift the social norm because it somehow benefits them in terms of their power. So... These are the lectures we're going through this weekend. We're going through sex fantasy and media priming, break parenting and age-appropriate tools for repatterning, unwinding the ADHD brain, relationship roadblocks, emotional numbing and emotional constipation, and Dr. Gloria's, which I know she shared with you guys yesterday, which is, I would say yours is more a positive, like, woo, this is what you can do after break. These are all pretty intense. Throughout these things, we're gonna be looking at the effect of social norms on adolescence, parenting, relationships, marriage, family, and in general, just your sense of self and self-concept. So I'll leave you with this before we go into the rest of the weekend. deviance in 2021 might look pretty wild. It's gonna be crazy, you guys, so crazy. Let's get lit up on kombucha. So <laughs> quite honestly, the things that might now be deviant are the things where you're like, what? <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, I'm like, whoo, I'm going to get my square pants on. <laughs> I'm about to live that square life. So sobriety certainly might be something that's very deviant, 2021 and beyond. So I think I shared this yesterday. I don't even know how this is able to be advertised on Facebook because there are a lot of things that are not. There are literally ads running that are like, I tried ketamine therapy and it changed my life and you should try ketamine too. And I'm like, you mean like the stuff that people sniffed at raves to go in a cave hole? And they're like, yeah, ketamine. It's like, you mean the animal tranquilizer? Yeah, it's a, it's a therapeutic drug. I'm like, okay, you tell yourself whatever you want. So we're living in kind of like a crazy world right now where now anything, if you package it correctly, can become therapeutic, right? You can literally go in a K-hole now with a therapist as a housewife and be like, I'm so much better now. I got to disconnect from my reality. I just feel so much better. Yeah, it's called going in a K-hole. And we all worried at a rave that you were actually dead. And then you go, I'm back. It was great. Someone get me another one. That's not something that should be normalized in society. Um, Also, I will say this with no judgment, but people constantly doing medicine journeys Medicine journeys, if you opt to do them, should be used medicinally, which means as needed, not all the time, right? Not habitually. Medicinally and habitually, very different things. So if someone's constantly doing ayahuasca journeys, number one, from a purely spiritual perspective, you're opening yourself up to a variety of... I mean, Dave can back me up on this. Very dark energies, if you haven't actually processed your stuff with something like break before you go do the medicine journey, like like meditation, going and opening yourself up like that when you haven't actually healed, in my opinion at least, recipe for disaster, be careful. You know, walk that at your own risk. But try to normalize that so every teen now is like, oh like I'm gonna be spiritually cool and woke and like go do ayahuasca. Like if you have a bunch of unprocessed trauma and now little kids think it's cool to like go do an ayahuasca journey, we're setting our kids up for some bad stuff, you guys. We should really try to educate a little bit more about that because it's now being presented and packaged as something that's really like cool and conscious. Which by the way, like that is the term that I usually call false light, where something is pitched as like light and opening and great. But if we really look at the trajectory of what that builds for that child or that person or that group, like what does the trajectory look like? Because that's the number one way to see, like, is that actually true light or is that false light? Dave, were you gonna say something?
3: Yeah. So Ayahuasca is not a journey like that, believe me. So if you ever try it, don't go into it lighthearted. It's not a party. No, no, no. Eight no. hours of your life.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it's terrible. <laughs> Just saying no to porn. I know this is a toughie for some of you. You're like, oh, really? Like all the time? Yeah, like all the time. I'm gonna go into it in depth. Why it's so important. And let me tell you, when we look at how much this is primed to be normalized, it's everywhere, everywhere. And the more your brain can be like, everybody does it. It's not that bad. It's only blah 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 blah, which I'm not gonna say because the in the room, right? Like whatever the type is, like you're talking categories. You're like, it's just this category. It's not like that category, right? Well, like guys we need to course correct here. If you're sitting there rationalizing which categories of it are better than others, like we just have a global problem. Agree? And the biggest problem is that it's actually the biggest block to you actually connecting intimately with your partner. I guarantee it. I I can prove it to you in a million ways tomorrow. Promise. Swearsies. Shutting down your social media accounts. I know for some of you are like, what, it's my only form of connection. Listen, I'm not telling you what to do here. I'm just saying your life might get exponentially better if you do this. Social media links your brain into a process that's so detrimental for you actually being present in your own life, present in your relationships, engaging with your kids. It's actually, I mean, it literally is built to destroy, I think, the very fabric of human connection. And now, and we've seen this even in that documentary that Bianca was talking about. Once they figured out how they could get people more and more addicted to it, they've done every single thing to make it more addictive rather than be like, you know what? We're kind of ruining humanity here. Maybe we should pull back a touch. They did the exact opposite because they don't care. I'm not saying that anybody has to do this. Maybe it's that you need to give yourself certain timeout periods during the week, but at least give give yourself the chance to observe how your life changes and is different by not engaging it to the level that you do now because it's going to be different. It has to be. There's no way it's not. So when I shut down Instagram, things got exponentially, like things were already great at home, things got way better at home. And honestly, as I shut it down, I started to think like how actually, like it didn't create that much more time in my life. So I'm, I then had to reconcile the fact that I was doing it while I was doing other things. Cause it wasn't like it actually created this big open hole where I was like, now I have so much free time. It was like, well, who was getting robbed by the time I was doing that? Because there is no more free time, which really puts things into perspective. Because it's, it's robbing somebody else that you love, probably, that needs your attention or the attention that you need to put in yourself or your career or whatever it is. But it's not just open time, usually. So, and it usually, again, it, no matter what, it takes you out of presence, yeah. which anything that takes you out of presence inherently is not good for what you're trying to do with your life. So we are going to dig into this with different strategies in other lectures. Um, Refocusing on family time without technology, maybe your family is you and your partner, maybe your family is you and your dog, whatever it is, we should probably be spending some more time doing things other than being connected to devices. It's easy, it's accessible, it sometimes is a great way to distract your kids if you just want to be left alone to finish something. But again, does that mean that it's ultimately the best decision across the board? No. Uh, my husband and I just implemented Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. The kids cannot be on any devices. They've got a stack of activity books and crossword puzzles and, like, mazes that are on the kitchen counter for breakfast. So they can either hang out and talk to us and listen to music or they can work on their activity books, but they just know Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's just, like, a no no option. They can't ask. There's no... Yes, right? <laughs> I'm sorry for watching... A lot. Of TV. I know. You? I know. You? Don't like it. I know. So sometimes when I'm, so sometimes, this is what we noticed, is that sometimes when I'm not home, or like the babysitter's home, if you get into a funk, right, and things get really busy, even if you know better, all of a sudden, Gordon and I were like, oh my god, Sarai's watched a lot of TV this week. And you can actually tell on how somebody's like, relaying information in their personality. And we all had a talk about it, and we're like, all right, everybody reset. It's not about holding yourself in some sort of shame. It's just like, all right, I notice it. I'm doing something to change it, rather than I notice it, and I'm just going to keep being in denial about it. So I will say that we're maybe two weeks now into the Monday, Wednesday, Friday thing. Now there's just no more tension. The kids just, like, they know it, and they actually look forward to it. And I actually noticed that on Thursday, no one reached for the computer. Because it's just like, once you don't do it, it's not necessarily the inclinations. I was like, can I have that activity book? And I'm like, yeah, it's right there, buddy. So maybe that's a game. Maybe that's going outside nature. Maybe that's going out on a hike. But try your hardest to make sure that whatever you're choosing to put in front of your kids or choosing to like constantly be connected to you with your partner is actually in your best interest, because it's probably not. right? Like having dinner with your partner and having both your phones on the table, is that actually necessary? Like maybe if you're a doctor on call, but unless you're a doctor on call, perhaps leave your phone in the car. Like if I'm out to a dinner date with my husband, we do not bring our phones. So if you put a basket or something in a certain part of the house and there's an actual place where when you come home, you're just like, oh, that goes in the basket. It solves two problems. You don't lose your phone because you know it's in the basket. And then the second thing is you actually have like a receptacle to be like, once it's in here, I don't touch it. Um, so try it, maybe that's just a few days. Give it a try, so worth it. I quite literally, I've this past semester, I will not look at my phone at all over the weekend. Like I won't touch it, I won't touch my computer, nothing. Um, I wake up usually to some very agitated people and emails on Monday that are like, what the fuck? Especially my mom, who's like, hello, hello, hello. And I'm like, mom, I told you I don't open my phone on the weekends. It's like 30 messages long. Hello, hello, hello. She starts throwing in some random emojis to see if she can get a response. That's not what emojis are, ma. So sometimes it's going to be met with agitation on the other side, right? Because you're changing your pattern, but that doesn't mean that you should just crumble and stop. I've had to get really good at on Monday saying like, you know, Hey, I'm, this is kind of the new way I do things. If this is an emergency, you can reach out to this and this person. And you know, they'll let me know. I've even had clients where if they have an emergency, I'll like find a way to squeeze them in on a Saturday or Sunday. And I had that happen to me two weeks ago. And I like looked at my phone and I looked at Gordon and I was like, hold on, I'm on this. And I voiced someone, I'm like, sorry, family time all weekend, I will reach back out to you on Monday and make that appointment. And he was like, good job, babe. I was like, yeah, <laughs> so hard. So, but it's hard, it's so worth it. Those are those first few steps outside of the way you've been doing it. Once you do it for a while, like not having Instagram, oh, it's glorious, it's so good. Choosing a committed relationship which sounds honestly like, duh, but in today's society, this is under attack in like every way you could possibly imagine, trying to make it like uncool, passe, not trendy, like, and in fact, scare you into all the different horrible ways that will end up if you even try, right? We're definitely gonna be digging into this in relationship roadblocks, but the goal here would be to get you to deviate to choose this, not because of religious programming or compliance and not just but. Not because, but because you actually know that this is in line with the end goals that you want for the person that you're with. And it does take a lot of work, so much work. But I'm going to detail what goes into that work in relationship roadblocks. Taking radical personal responsibility to work on yourself before you blame someone else. How many people wish that this was more standardized in our society? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, that'd be great. But unfortunately, it's the exact opposite. Reflexively, we blame before we look at ourselves, right? You guys gave the perfect example, right? You get mad like, you're trying to control me. Then you're like, oh, wait, this is actually a me problem. (laughs) Once you do break, it's a lot easier to not go you problem first. You immediately look at yourself and you're like, definitely a me problem. Where do I find the me problem? Right now you have the tools to find it figure out how your brain's tricking you into thinking it's a them problem, because that's also really important, right? It's not just about taking personal responsibility, it's about understanding how your brain is actually tricking you into projecting it on the other person. Because that information is equally as valuable as what you are responsible for. So if we actually changed this societally, what would the world look like? So good, right? Can you just see everybody frolicking in their ascension
2: (laughs) across the meadows?
3: (sighs) That's what
0: I like to think about when I feel hopeless. I'm like, you know what, one day, people are gonna be frolicking without devices, taking radical personal responsibility and shit, having strong family units, sober. We are the device. We are, right? We're gonna be the new deviants. Um, Helping your child actively navigate the changing landscape of sexual identity and gender and sexual identity. This one's a doozy. We're gonna go into it as carefully and non-triggeringly, is that a word, as possible. Um, I wouldn't be doing my job if I just pretended that this wasn't a problem for kids. So I have to do my job and I'm sorry in advance, but we gotta go through it. It's gonna be important and we are gonna cover this in break parenting because it's something that is really top of mind for kids, especially like really, unfortunately, nine and up. Um, From nine on, it gets pretty intense. So it's not about good or bad, right or wrong. It's just about how to navigate it while helping a child anchor into their personal sovereignty and not necessarily get pressured or pulled into what's cool or on trend. Because we know that the trajectory of that mental health wise, not ideal, right? Just like cutting becoming cool, not a great trajectory, right? Once you make cutting so cool, then you have to have things like Raylan described where you have a cutting center where someone can help you cut carefully, right? We just, these things are preventable if we stop trying to normalize them. Um, this is a big one for me, looking at different perspectives before labeling, labeling, I turned into my grand grandmother <laughs> for a second there, um, before labeling your child or yourself. So often we get put labels on things like an autoimmune disease like a psychological condition and these labels really do virtually nothing for us we're much better served at looking at just what the symptoms are what the inputs are and try to figure out how to reconcile that input output relationship without tricking ourselves into thinking like if it's this then this is the trajectory because that's not necessarily true. Right? and you can literally become a self-fulfilling prophecy in that. If I listened to any of the things Sarai's doctors told me about her when she was born, I mean, I always knew that they were not telling the truth, and I kept kind of forging ahead, and they were like, do you want to maybe see a psychiatrist? Like, we feel like you're not hearing us, and I'm like, you're not hearing me. My daughter is gonna walk, and she's gonna be fine, and they were like, it's just not possible. I'm like, It's not only possible; it's gonna happen. I've already seen it in the future. Look at this beautiful thing, right? (laughs) Woo! Yeah, girl. So, but a lot of times the doctor will be like, "This is how it's gonna be," and now you just have to deal with it. But once they tell you what that endpoint's gonna look like, you actually make it happen. As soon as they told me that, I was like, "Sorry, but no. I'm just. I will never stop trying alternative treatments until what you're saying is not a reality anymore." So. We already know that information is controlled and manipulated, therefore, labeling comes from that same information. We just have to be really mindful about what we let that information mean about us. We know that the way we choose to define any scenario then decides that, you know, I'm going to use ACB pathway, it decides what sorts of behaviors or choices are available to us that make that decision process true. The same is true for any sort of labeling. Ideally, if we want to get an outcome that a doctor or someone is telling us is not possible, the first thing we have to do is drop the label. That's not saying, like, you know, stop going to your doctor or stop, you know, engaging in that conversation, but at least don't latch on to the label in your head because it's certainly not something that's going to help you through the change. And then, to me, this is the most important one, actually healing your emotional wounds and leveling up your friends and family with you instead of trying to constantly normalize your darkness, right? If we're in a really dark place, and I I remember in my 20s, there was a time when I was just so depressed that I just wanted to drink all the time, which made me want to hang out with my friends that love to drink all the time, right? Like, there are certain friend groups that, based on how dark you are, you're like, oh, now I can hang out with this group because they're as dark as I am, (laughs) Right, So ideally, we want to be leveling ourselves up and helping our other friend groups and family groups level up too rather than just keep feeding our darkness and then having to find other people that will feed their darkness as well. So I think this content is really important that we will hopefully be able to see all the different ways in which we are being primed and programmed into getting worse or staying the same rather than changing and getting better as a collective and i really hope that we will all choose to be the very much new deviant thanks for checking out this week's episode of the modern good to find out more about break method head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule busygold.com i'll see you next week